I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. Following the murder of George Floyd and the ensuing civil unrest, we've spent weeks in prayer, lament, and complicated conversation as a church. Now it's time to take a more detailed look about how we take action on the journey toward racial reconciliation. 2020 is not the first year in which videos proliferated on news and social media showcasing white men and women who are angry, aggressive, and antagonistic toward black men and women that they encounter in the ordinary rhythms of life. In May of 2018, a white woman was filmed as she called the Oakland police on a black family barbecue. The same summer, a black man filmed an angry white apartment manager as she demanded he, and not the nearby white residents, leave the pool, unconvinced of his residency despite having been shown his key. A white woman called the police in Rialto, California, when she observed several black Airbnb guests leaving with luggage, claiming that she feared a robbery because, quote, they did not smile or wave at her. A white Yale student called police when she discovered another black student had fallen asleep in the dorm's common area while studying. A white woman in San Francisco was filmed calling the police on an eight-year-old black girl, black girl, Jordan Rogers, because Jordan Rogers was selling water outside her home to raise money for a trip to Disneyland. In Georgia, a white woman in a Walmart parking lot called the police when she said she, quote, saw a black gentleman with these two little white kids, and so I just had a funny feeling. She approached the man, who was Corey Lewis, a stranger to her, and she asked him to prove that the kids knew him. The man was babysitting his friend's children. A white woman in Memphis called police on Cam Reporter because her boyfriend was wearing socks at the apartment pool. Jermaine Massey, a black guest at Portland's Hilton Hotel, was removed from the building because he was sitting in the lobby, thus looking suspicious. Paul McCowns, a black man in Ohio, was handcuffed and arrested after bank tellers called the police because Paul attempted to cash his paycheck there. I could go on and on and on and only address incidents caught on video and distributed online. But one such video, recorded and made infamous just weeks ago, was different. On the morning of May 25th, a white woman named Amy Cooper took her dog for a walk in Central Park. When a passing black man pointed out that her dog was without a leash in an area that required leashes, an argument ensued between the two of them. During that argument, Amy Cooper was recorded on camera, agitated and frantic, as she, a white woman, warns the black man filming her, quote, I'm calling the cops. I'm going to tell them that there is an African-American man threatening my life. And there was a knowingness to the way Amy Cooper threatened this man, a significance to the way she warned him that when she called the police, she was going to tell them that he was black. The video shows Amy Cooper as she grips her dog's collar, wrenching it upward by the neck as it struggles and chokes. Then she calls the police, suddenly transitioning the tone of her voice from aggravated to hysterical as she pleads, there's an African-American man. He's threatening me. Please send the cops. South African comedian Trevor Noah later reflected on the video saying, in the video, a woman uses her whiteness to blatantly threaten the life of a man and his blackness. It tells you how she perceives the police. 
It tells you her perception of her relationship with the police as a white woman. It shows you how she perceives a black man's relationship with the police and the police's relationship with him. It often feels as if no amount of videos or stories from people of color will convince some white Americans to abandon their willful ignorance, their refusal to acknowledge that the experience of men and women of color in America is unlike their own. But the video taken in Central Park that morning reveals a secret understanding just beneath the surface. Amy's Cooper, Amy Cooper's threat was complex. It was more than a promise to tattletale. She seemed to understand a power in the specificity of her words, like an angry person brandishing a gun, completely aware of the bullets inside. And yet in the days and weeks that followed, debate surged across America as to the authenticity of an idea known as systemic racism. And it wasn't Amy Cooper's video alone that sparked the debate. Hours after Amy Cooper was filmed in Central Park, four police officers accomplished the murder of George Floyd before witnesses on camera and in broad daylight. And the ominous threat recorded in Central Park that morning was demonstrated that night on a street in Minneapolis. All of this on May 25th, which your calendar app recognizes as Memorial Day. The official history of Memorial Day records its founding by Union soldiers after the Civil War, but David W. Blight, a historian at Yale, traces the holiday to freed black Americans in 1865. And this disagreement highlights American slavery, it highlights violent militarism, and history revised to obscure black voices and stories when the powerful reach down from their lofty pedestals to take from the weak. And this is, in many ways, the story of white America. As a white pastor of a majority white church in a majority white city, I must understand my place in the story of white America, a story I learned to despise at a young age. And in my animosity, I foolishly believed, assumed, that I could wash my hands of complex generational sin, a layered history of evil, and simply by hating it, be rid of it. But it's not that simple. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. About halfway into his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul suddenly crafts a poem. It's one of the most studied passages in the entire New Testament. We don't have time or the space for an entire exegetical unpacking of this passage at the moment. So what I want to do is read the text and bring it to bear on our conversation because doing so requires no manipulation of Paul's words whatsoever. It's one of the most beautifully and shockingly candid charges to disciples of Jesus in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2 Beginning with verse 3, Paul writes to disciples of Jesus, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, because of that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus the King is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. For the last few weeks, so-called evangelicals have been debating what genre of sin to which racism belongs. Desperate to keep their theology from creeping into their social and political ideologies and idolatries, evangelicals have been shouting, racism is a heart issue, not a political issue. Others have boasted, we just preach the gospel, we leave politics out of it. This is the escape hatch for American Christians raised in a hyper-individualistic worldview. And like all the best lies, there is an element of truth in it. Racism is sin. In a certain sense, this is an issue of the heart. But in the scriptures, sin is internal and external, with both internal and external consequences. Modern evangelical Christians have infamously shame-smashed the gospel of Jesus into a small, misshapen bottom line. Get saved, go to heaven when you die. Theology, in practice, when viewed through that bottom line, becomes hopelessly abstracted from action. So that the first and last and only pressing matters for Christians is the saving of the soul. Sin isn't political or social or systemic. It is only a heart issue. People don't need social reform or justice. They only need to go to heaven. Noting this, pastor and author Alan Cross said of racism in America, we don't believe that people are saved by restructuring society, but if you do know Christ, if you have a relationship with him, you should see the pain of people around you and you should say, what can I do? For Paul, there is no abstract theology. For Paul, there is no hyper-individualistic spiritualism, meaning the teachings of Jesus are not intended for your private prayer life. They are not open to the unique interpretation of your journey. They are not between you and God. The teachings of Jesus are not purely internal, and the gospel of Jesus cannot be reduced to an afterlife. No, the teaching of Jesus is tactile, it's pragmatic. When we read the New Testament, we read it as intended for the external as much as it is for the internal. We've actually built our entire church around this conviction. The practices of Jesus were not crafted to shape your morning quiet time only, but also the way you talk and the way you behave, the things that you say, the way you spend money, your diet and lifestyle, your sexuality, how you think about the world and the people in it, and what you do as a result. Everything is theological. Everything we learn about God in the heart and the mind comes to bear on the way that we live as a result. And in this passage in Philippians, we learn and relearn an incredible thing about the creator God of the universe, but not before we're told how it is to impact the way we live. This is crucial in understanding Paul's charge to disciples of Jesus in Philippians 2. Paul begins by commanding disciples of Jesus to value others above themselves. Before you evaluate what is best for you, he writes, consider what is best for someone else. This is incredible. So lofty a commandment that it is virtually unheard of 
the audacity of it. It absolutely flies in the face of virtually everything we're told by the world around us against the molecular human urge to survive. Value others above yourself. But Paul is prepared to back the audacity of this command with something even more outrageous. Why should we do this incredible thing? Because the creator God of the universe has already done this thing for us. Now don't rush to romanticized spiritual sentimentality when you read this poem. Sit in the scandal of it. The second person of what we call the Trinity who existed before the man in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, was and is God. And yet, of his own volition, he deliberately set the privilege and power of his godness aside. And this mind-blowing sacrifice of power and status goes further than we can imagine. If the almighty God of everything were to relinquish his status as God to become, say, a human emperor, this would be an immeasurable sacrifice of power and prestige to go from God of the universe to human emperor. But Almighty God did not set aside his godness to become a human emperor, but instead to become what the world deemed to be nothing. In Jesus, God set aside all power, all status, all honor in order to become the peasant poor born into and belonging not to the political or religious power, but to the oppressed. If this is not enough to demonstrate to us God's unique solidarity with the oppressed, I'm not sure anything will. God looked out on the entire world, and when he chose to step into the human experience, he bypassed the wealthy, the powerful, the comfortable, and he chose instead to enter human history in the flesh among those deemed worthless, by the privileged and powerful. And upon the inauguration of God's kingdom, Jesus declared that it was arriving, first of all, for the overlooked, those deemed worthless by society's power structures, proclaiming, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be filled. Many have read these, what we call the Beatitudes, as a list of virtues. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so we ought to hunger and thirst for righteousness. But this is not a list of inferred commands. This is a statement about what is already true. This is good news for so-called worthless people, those who have been mourning, those who have long awaited justice. They are blessed, special to God, favored by God. And it then begs the question, what does this mean for those of us who have never been deemed worthless by society? Those of us who have not been made to crave justice for our suffering of injustice. Deep in rural southeast Georgia in the church my family attended for years, there hung a reproduction of Warner Salmon's Head of Christ. This image shaped my childhood mental image of Jesus, his blue eyes, his golden locks, and white skin. Salmon, a white man like many white Americans of his time and long after, when imagining Jesus, seems to have imagined himself, white, Salmon imagined his white Jesus calling to him well-dressed white children. 
And in images that seem innocuous and inconsequential to many, the artist betrays the baseline assumption of white American Christians for centuries. Jesus is one of us. The privileged, the powerful, the ruling class. And today I want to begin to talk about what we do about racism and injustice. I want to talk about taking action. But for our church, that conversation must begin with addressing whiteness. Understanding whiteness is not about learning to disdain your own whiteness. It's not about shame. It is about understanding where you fit in a greater story and how you apply the teaching of Jesus as a result. American whiteness has, for generations, simply assumed its predominance. The history of American whiteness includes colonizing, manifest destiny, the slaughter of indigenous peoples, the violent horrors of slavery. The story of American whiteness is erecting vagrancy laws after the Civil War that made it illegal not to have a job and then applying that law to black men only. These laws gave rise to convict leasing with conditions often worse than the slavery black men had only recently escaped. The story of American whiteness is segregation, Jim Crow laws, that systematized the ostracization of black men, women, and children in nearly every sphere of society, from restaurants to churches to hospitals and even funeral homes. This story is federal government policies enacted to actively encourage white home ownership while actively discouraging black home ownership. The Federal, the federal Housing Administration redlining black neighborhoods as unsafe for federally backed mortgage loans. So that even today, the average American black household has one-tenth of the generational wealth of the average white household. After World War II, the infamous GI Bill made it possible for returning white soldiers to build home equity and wealth and inheritance while the trickery of its implementation kept black men from those same benefits. Without the general, generational wealth of white people, segregated black families were left to the inner cities where they could not access suburban jobs nor the financial means to acquire or commute to or sustain almost any work. Unemployment skyrocketed in the 70s and 80s and with it, predictably, drug use and crime. White America was fed a steady, uh, a steady diet of images via white magazines and television of black violence and black crime, stewarding white paranoia. Drug users and drug dealers became America's villains, and the proliferation of the drug crisis was treated not with doctors, not with hospitals, but with the militarization of the police force. Massive government funding was funneled into the Department of Defense. Mandatory minimum sentencing and mandatory evictions were implemented, overloading the prison system and creating more and more homelessness. Drug felons were barred from public housing and rendered ineligible for food stamps. More money and resources were poured into American police forces, arming cops with rifles and grenade launchers for the first time, while federal grants were given to local police departments based on the number of drug-related arrests. Prisons overflowed with black Americans while research and statistics revealed no increase in crime or drug use, only in the strictness of the laws built up to combat them. America, then and now, is practically bursting at the seams with racialized police enforcement, violence, and brutality as the world has seen and is still seeing. 
And so white America hated black America for being steamrolled by a system built in every way to steamroll them, creating caricatures of black Americans as poor, as criminals, as junkies. And in Georgia, I was raised in a narrative of cold, merciless indifference. Why can't these people just get their act together like us? We're doing just fine. It was as if America itself had placed wealth and prosperity into the hands of white men while setting both atop harrowing mountains riddled with landmines and avalanches and vicious predators and telling black men, women, and children, well, get up there and go get them. We have ours. Go get yours. Then America sneered and scoffed as they fell victim to the very perils America itself had set before them. And though these things began long ago, they have continued to plague America like a virus with no cure. This is what we mean when we say systemic racism. And the white America that built a system that oppresses and victimizes black people, the hatefulness required to fuel this awful engine, continues to uphold and defend the power structure that keeps that oppression alive. And it continues to echo throughout history. So that in 1967, when civil rights protests exploded across Miami, the chief of police with a well-reported history of racism bragged, quote, we don't mind being accused of police brutality. They haven't seen anything yet. When the looting starts, the shooting starts. And then, more than 50 years later, as if nothing had changed, the president of the United States, with his own history of racism, deliberately invoked that violent racist cop as America again burst at the seams with the anger and grief of black generations. Warning, once again, from the seat of power, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. This is why our black brothers and sisters feel as if nothing has changed, as if we aren't listening as if we want the systems that keep oppression alive and unchecked. Now, why am I, as a teacher of the Bible and theology, taking this detour through American history? Because it was American whiteness that conducted these evils under the outspoken presupposition of its own superior, superiority. It was because of race. It has presupposed its seat at the table, its position and its power. And in doing so, the white Christian narrative has willfully ignored the story of a God who did not enter humanity through the places of power and position, but rather amongst the oppressed. In the early 60s, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. observed that nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. My church, the church that I love, our small community, predominantly white, in our predominantly white city. In order to understand God's heart for the oppressed, in order to understand what the Spirit of God wants to do amongst his people and in our nation, we have a story with which to contend. White people do not think of themselves as a people. There are all sorts of reasons for this, but this, this subconscious mode of racelessness provides for white people a means of escaping the hard work of grappling with a troubling legacy. Author Eula Biss wrote, It isn't easy to accept the legacy of whiteness as an identity. It is an identity that carries the burden of history without fostering a true understanding of the painfulness and the cost of complicity. That's why so many of us pretend that to be white is merely to be raceless. Today, 
I want to examine a few ideas permeating conversations around the world in the wake of the murders of George Floyd, of Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor. You've probably heard them described like this in popular culture, white supremacy, white privilege, white fragility, white guilt, and cancel culture. It's often difficult for white people to grapple with the concept of privilege, our tendency being either defensiveness or wallowing in shame. This defensiveness has come to be known as white fragility, when the mere mention of race and privilege activate a white person's defense mode. Defensiveness because we misunderstand, either willfully or passively, the nature of our privilege. Author David Swanson points out that white people must acknowledge that we have been born into a world that sees us as racially white and assigns us certain unearned privileges because of it. This is not to say that white people in America do not face injustices, even systemic ones, only that we don't face them because of our race. As white Christians, beneficiaries of this racial hierarchy, we are responsible to see things that our race works overtime to make us miss. I was treated horribly by police officers as a teenager in the South because I had crazy hair and safety pins in my face. I had guns pulled on me. I was shoved and pushed and screamed at and called horrible names. I was accused of things that I did not do and that the police officers knew that I did not do. And I used these stories at the time to relate to my black friends in high school until I realized one day that unlike them, if I wanted to, I could get a haircut and make the abuse stop. Their story is not my story. And we all belong to a story. Something we've been emphasizing again and again throughout this series is that the Bible has no paradigm for individualism. In the Bible, you always exist within a complex web of group identity. Your story is interwoven with the story of a people, a tribe, the nation, the generations before you. We need to understand this. It's very difficult for white American Christians to wrap our minds around something that the Bible simply takes for granted. And the Bible story includes all kinds of different narratives about those in power encountering God and entering a new way of life. But when Roman Gentiles, for example, stepped into the faith and worldview of a persecuted minority of oppressed Jews, they understood themselves as outsiders stepping into and accepted by another world. White American Christians, by and large, do not read themselves into the Bible this way. Imagine if Roman Gentiles who came to faith in Jesus in the first century, now brothers and sisters, with the Jewish people to whom for so long they had been the oppressor, imagine if they just made excuses. I wasn't so bad personally. Take it up with the rest of them. That was a long time ago. Hey, I've had it rough too. I've had my own struggles. Or was it really even that big a deal? This is white American Christianity. Because we have been steeped in Western individualism from birth, we take passages intended for the poor, the oppressed, the minority, and we interpret them to be for us, the wealthy, the powerful, the majority. And when we do this, we not only bypass the beautiful scandal of our salvation, but we reinforce generations of unwillingness to hear the cries of the oppressed and to understand the role of the powerful in doing justice. Now, don't check out. This is why this first, the first action step in racial justice and reconciliation 
is taking a long look at white American Christianity. The world has a lot to say right now about what any given person should and shouldn't be doing when it comes to race and justice and reconciliation. I've seen unity. I've seen a willingness to grow and learn. I've seen repentance. I've seen beautiful things. But I've also seen division and vitriol and, of course, political idolatry being exposed like a festering wound. I've seen white Christians clinging to their racism, their generational sin, terrified that they are, if they are made to give these things up, their false gods will be taken from them. They tremble, terrified that acknowledging privilege might somehow make them sound liberal, might somehow make them sound like Democrats, might put them in league with whoever it is that they don't like. When we ought to tremble, terrified that if we don't obey Jesus, we might act in league with Satan. Worry about what Jesus will say to you in judgment, not what some faceless personality might say on Facebook. And you, Van City Church, you are disciples of Jesus. You are to willingly and readily set aside any and all political allegiances, any defensiveness, and to lay yourself bare before God in order to purge sin, walk in repentance, and to do righteousness and justice. Value others above yourself. Our example is in God, the God of the universe who willingly set his power and status aside in order that he might become nothing, a servant on behalf of the poor and the oppressed. White Christians, when you rush to defend or deny your privilege, when you attempt to justify or rationalize the oppression of our black and brown brothers and sisters, when you dismiss yourself from the sin of your people rather than weeping and mourning its legacy, desperately searching for your, your own heart for any trace of its poison, when you justify oppression according to the empire's politics, you bring shame to the name of Jesus. Repent cry out to God for forgiveness of not only your own sin, but the sin of generations before you, the nation, your heritage, your story. Lamenting sin beyond the narrow scope of individualism, the sin of your family or country, is not about admitting to things that you didn't do or making yourself feel bad or wallowing in shame over things that you can't control. It's about deliberately entering into God's heart for the oppressed and God's heart against evil. Much is misunderstood, I think, about guilt and shame. Guilt is our felt experience of our responsibility for or complicity in something wrong. We need guilt. Guilt can lead us to conviction and repentance. Shame happens when we believe not just that we've done something wrong, but that we are bad at a fundamental level. And though guilt and shame have become Christian swear words, even shame has a place in the scriptures, the realization and grappling with our own brokenness that we are bent out of shape. I think of Paul in 1 Corinthians writing, I say this to shame you in order that you might be led to repentance. A popular and infamous post-Christian social media personality recently tweeted that heaven is realizing you're already perfect just the way you are. The idea was so ridiculous that it seemed funny at the time before it became sinister when remembering those words days later as Derek Chauvin brutally murdered George Floyd. Was Chauvin perfect just the way he was? No, something is wrong with us. But in our world, much of the conversation around guilt, shame, and race unfolds not in a biblical paradigm, but of course, on social media. In 2019, a famous actress tweeted, 
Quote, I'm sorry I was born white and privileged. It disgusts me and I feel so much shame. She was immediately mocked, maybe understandably so, for this melodramatic digital gesture of what is often called white guilt. In popular culture, white guilt is a wallowing, woe-is-me mentality chastised for self-centeredness and inaction. When white people beg for forgiveness for having been born white, they again place responsibility on black people to expunge their guilt and shame. But whiteness in and of itself is not bad. I feel no shame for simply being born white. I do not love my children less for their whiteness. But I understand that I am not so precious and so unique that my story exists independent of my family and my culture and the world around me. So though no one sinned, and simply being born white, and though I did not choose my own whiteness, I have been born into the story of a broken world. And as a disciple of Jesus, I have been called to do justice. That story is both narrow and wide. Narrow in that on a personal level, I have a grandfather that I never met who was allegedly in the Ku Klux Klan. And I grew up steeped in Southern racism personally. And my story is also broad, as broad as the story of white America itself. Part of doing justice for me is understanding systems of oppression at work in my world. If I do not understand them, I cannot confront them. Every disciple of Jesus is commanded to enter into God's anger against injustice. And God has not qualified the command to do justice with caveats. All of us have been commanded to stand with the oppressed, to enact change in the world, to value others above ourselves. Step one in that journey for white Christians is to acknowledge and come to terms with the reality that whatever hardship you have faced in life, and there is, there are, have bound, there is bound to have been hardships and there will be more, you have not suffered hardship because of your race the way that people of, cover, of, the way that people of color have suffered hardship because of their race. And that very basic, very simple, very humane acknowledgement can move us into responsibility and into action. As white disciples of Jesus in a world reacting to the murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and so many others before them, after recognizing the privilege into which you have been born and its legacy of racism, the first step is to listen and to learn. That is your responsibility. It is not the responsibility of black men and women to teach you. And it certainly isn't their responsibility to somehow prove to you that it matters. We live at a time when a wealth of information is readily accessible at your fingertips. My personal recommendation when attempting to listen and to learn is to try and move your attention away from social media and away from the political biases of the news media unless they are directing you to resources beyond themselves. Instead, make more time to read actual books, not Instagram captions. Read black authors, read books about race and history, read articles and essays, listen to black preachers and thinkers and theologians and thought leaders, listen to podcasts, watch videos and documentaries and films. We have a few resources listed at vancity.church slash racial justice, the link is on the teaching page and in this video description. You are to also listen and learn from the scriptures and the spirit of God in prayer. This fundamental fact for disciples of Jesus is why black writer Philip M. Holmes recently said, Christian, if you're not reading your Bible and praying, stop asking for resources on race. 
His point wasn't to discourage listening and learning, but to remind every disciple of Jesus our ultimate source of truth and wisdom. So pray, lament, immerse yourself in the scriptures, ask God for wisdom, pray against racism and injustice. Pray against systems of power that keep oppression alive. The world is always going to be critical of the seriousness with which disciples of Jesus regard prayer. That's a given. But for us, prayer is not sending good thoughts. Prayer is action. Prayer is protest and revolt against evil and injustice. Prayer is how we kneel before a mighty God and demand justice and goodness, His will done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is not passive. Prayer is action, but prayer is always to be coupled with further action. Yes, we pray, we highlight in prayer, we emphasize and prioritize prayer, but we do not end there. The New Testament actually condemns the let's just pray and let that be that mentality with severe language. Look at this from James. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, no action? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. There's injustice in the world. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have the faith and I have the deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So first we acknowledge and confront our privileges. Then we listen and learn before we speak up. The scriptures are absolutely replete with the seriousness of learning when to be quiet. From the Hebrew wisdom literature where we read, Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. To the New Testament where we read again in James, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, and reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed, have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. If you've dipped a single toe into the maelstrom of social media these past few weeks, you know this to be true. In the wake of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and shortly after, I watched as other pastors and churches attempted to address evil and injustice, attempting to acknowledge their own complicity and move their communities to repentance and action. And through it all, one thing remained constant. Angry young white people shouting in the comments section. Without asking, without knowing, without participating in the community they claim to so bravely call out, angry young white people stand prepared to condemn perceived inaction, to critique the details, to police the verbiage. This is what happens when what many call white privilege and white fragility blossom into something called cancel culture. When the privilege of white people allows them to bypass listening and learning and their fragility explodes in a new kind of defensiveness that screams, but I'm one of the good ones by pointing out how bad other people are. 
I have friends who lead a large church. And within the governance of that church is something called a diversity team. It's made up of men and women of color that together help lead the church in justice and reconciliation. But when that team, working to pastor their community well, helps lead the church into prayer and lament, for example, white people show up to scream in the comments, prayer isn't enough, do something. I was at a prayer vigil for justice in Portland last week with my family, listening to black pastors in the city, black leaders expose the ugly racist history of Portland and cry out to God for healing. It was a beautiful time. But when that vigil was announced, angry young white people showed up in the comments to scream that the scheduling was done improperly. A white pastor friend of mine mentioned online that other pastors in his area had met with black faith leaders to listen and to pray, and angry young white people scolded, them and scolded him in the comments for not capitalizing the word black. This incredibly reckless and irresponsible rushed speech brandishes ignorance and entitlement with an awful, ugly megaphone. I imagine these outraged young white Instagrammers storming the prayer vigils to snatch the microphone from black pastors several times their age to let everyone know the event hasn't been organized to their white liking. I imagine these angry commenters before diversity teams chastising men and women of color for not posting the right things on social media. All of this reeks of the effort to draw attention to the angry white person, to emphasize their goodness over and against the badness of the person that they simply must correct. This kind of behavior is nothing new, and it exposes the entitlement so many white people have long taken for granted. Why should I take the time to learn anything before I start shouting? Why should I hold my tongue when this is a great opportunity to broadcast my goodness on social media? Isn't this moment about me? My voice needs to be heard as much as anyone else. My rightness needs to be showcased and celebrated. And maybe this seems far-fetched to many of you behaving this way, but the angry white commenters highlight that even vocally anti-racist white people showcase privilege in their unwillingness to listen. Writer Judy Wu Dominic warns, in your urgency, do not hurry. Right now, all your urgency should be directed toward learning, toward reckoning with the gaping holes in your Christian ethics and practice, not toward speaking. Speaking or leading before you've taken the time to unpack your own blind spots, biases, and unbiblical, sens unbiblical sensibilities will cause a lot of unnecessary distraction and do unintentional harm, especially if you have a large platform. If you're attempting to address the silence is complicity issue by speaking, realize that you can break silence in ways that don't involve you centering your own voice. Do not speak into anything without first taking the time to listen and to learn. Then we must speak up. Every disciple of Jesus must learn to find their voice in condemning evil and injustice. We will speak up. With Jesus as our example, we will learn to grow in our willingness and wisdom to speak truth to power, to recognize evil, and to denounce the work of the evil one, vocally so. But speaking up for the white Christian means learning our privilege and using it, leveraging it to highlight the voices of the oppressed, to draw attention away from us and to amplify voices that have been long silenced by systems of the empire. When that happens, the speaking up that ensues will often sound like outrage. And that's okay. God is outraged by evil. God loathes 
racism, all forms of racism. And the way we talk about it should appropriately reflect God's anger that burns against injustice. But our anger is different than the world's. Look at this again from James. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now notice the language, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And we don't think that James intends to forbid anger in general for two simple reasons. The first being that we can't always control whether or not we become angry. We can learn to address the reasons some things make us angry. We can learn to master what we do in our anger, but we can't always control whether or not we become angry in the first place. And secondly, Jesus, our clearest picture of a completely spirit-led, integrated, wise and mature, perfect human being, Jesus got angry. So James includes a qualifier, a clarifying statement. He's talking about human anger, the kind of anger that is more literally of man rather than of God. If you want easy examples of human anger, scroll through the comments section. But we will get angry and we will speak up out of that anger. We are to be prepared to acknowledge evil even when doing so requires that you lay your idols down to die. Because I can tell you this, in the Bible you will find story after story of God siding with and uplifting the cause of the oppressed and you will not find a single story in which God advocates for the empire. So if denouncing racism makes something in you twitch because you're afraid of the political implications, this is evidence of political idolatry that the cause of the empire has eclipsed the cause of Christ in your life. Lay it before God to be destroyed. Every disciple of Jesus must learn to find their voice in condemning evil and injustice, but speaking up won't always look the same for every person. And we should expect that speaking out against evil will likely be costly. Maybe speaking up for you will mean making a family dinner with other disciples of Jesus awkward, by actually saying, that's not okay. If you are into social media, if you're active and in the habit of posting your lunch or your staged little moment, then it may mean disrupting that feed to share resources that amplify the voice of the oppressed. Maybe your uncle will leave you angry Facebook comments or someone will shout at you for not getting it right. Maybe you don't feel like an outspoken person, but the truth is that all of us are vocalizing the things we believe by what we do. You promote habits and beliefs. You promote TV shows or hobbies or rhythms of life in the way that you talk, the way, the way that you arrange your schedule or just the way that you move through life. So if you refuse to listen and to learn, what you're saying is that you are choosing to indulge the luxury of not caring. If you refuse to speak up, in whatever context God's Spirit would move you to speak, you're saying that the things on which you remain silent matter much less to you than the things that you do address. So find your voice. You do have one. Parents, talk to your kids about racism about what's going on in the world. Even if your kids are small and even if they can't understand all of it, read them books, tell them stories. My kids are six and three and I can tell you that when I was their age, I had already learned and absorbed much about race just from the world around me. 
you have a responsibility to lead your children in the way of Jesus and they will learn about racism. Don't you want their earliest memories of those conversations to be with you as you told them what is good and what is evil according to the scriptures and the way of Jesus? Speak up. And speaking up always coexists with more action. As it is written, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The kind of action that affects real change takes time. Racial reconciliation for disciples of Jesus does not mean rushing out to find a black friend for your purposes of diversifying your life and checking a box off of a checklist. This objectifies people of color for your purposes. But white Christians can put themselves in places and positions to better hear and learn from the black community. We can find causes in which to participate, community events to attend, show up to a prayer vigil, go to a protest, step into spaces to learn and see and hear things that you haven't seen before. This will mean recognizing that for most of us, this is work we've not had to engage or even consider, and no one is going to do it for us. We have to be willing to inconvenience ourselves to feel awkward or even dumb to take clumsy, imperfect steps towards something better. And if the journey makes you feel uncomfortable or out of place, then welcome to the experience of our black brothers and sisters navigating white American Christianity. Doing justice in the scriptures and throughout church history has always meant a convergence of voice and action and lifestyle. Doing justice means directing words and behavior and finances to stand with the oppressed. As many of you know, Van City gives 10% of all money given to the church to justice causes both locally and globally. And because of your generosity, because of your faithfulness in this season, our very small church has been able to allocate $6,000 to donate to the Equal Justice Initiative, whose mission statement is to end mass incarceration and excessive punishment, to challenge racial and economic injustice, and to protect basic human rights for the most vulnerable people in American society. We're also, as a church, committed to pursuing long-term financial support of organizations like this one that work toward racial justice for our black and brown brothers and sisters, both locally and nationally. There are other great places to donate as well. And giving is a form of action. In all this, we have to recognize certain tensions in the process of learning to combat racism and injustice. We have to learn to listen, but you can't possibly listen to everything. Don't use a feeling of being overwhelmed as an excuse for inaction. Start somewhere. And even when you try, you will make mistakes. Be prepared to admit to them. Err on the side of admitting to them. Err on the side of owning your mistakes and repenting. And even when you do all that, someone is going to have a problem with it. Remember the words of your master, everyone will hate you because of me. Remember those words not as a discouragement, but to arm yourself for the difficult road ahead. Jesus told us it would be this way. He goes with us. And if they hate us for doing good, we are like him by the grace of God. My church, the church that I love, predominantly white in a predominantly white city, don't look away. Let's begin as a community to take a long and ongoing look at our own story, the story of our people and country and the generations before us, where we fit in that story, the, the marks that story has made on us. 
And let's begin as a community the ongoing process of listening and learning to do hard and uncomfortable work sitting under teachers and voices previously alien to us, work that seems daunting for the sake of doing justice. Let's give voice to the oppressed by being prepared to speak up graciously, with humility, but without compromise, willing to make dinner awkward or to lose followers or to be called names. Let us speak up by amplifying black voices without drawing our attention to ourselves in doing so. Let us speak up by leading our children in the truth. And let our words be accompanied by action always. Action is a long road, but let us begin to walk it, to take what we're hearing and learning and put it into practice with our time, our voice, our finances, our families. None of this is a new invitation. Earlier this week, I was praying for our church, listening to God's spirit, and I felt as if there was a person or several people looking out on the the turbulent landscape of race and justice and feeling as if they have no way in. Maybe you feel overwhelmed, as if you'll never learn all the right things or say all the right things or do all the right things. Maybe you feel as if you'll have to give up something you believe and it'll be too painful. Maybe you'll have to set something down that feels too precious. But the call to do justice is not a new command. This is an invitation to what Jesus called the kingdom of God, where God's rule and reign and goodness and will extend out over our lives and communities and relationships and over the world. In God's king, kingdom, in the kingdom of God, the lesser God, the God of racism, the snake, is crushed beneath the foot of King Jesus. In God's kingdom, the privileged lay down their power and position to value others above themselves in order that they might be perfect the way their heavenly Father is perfect. When God's rule and reign and will are realized on earth as they are in heaven, there's no police brutality. There's no violence at all. It's the same invitation that has always been ringing out over millennia. Do righteousness and justice. Come, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. And this means that if we are ultimately unwilling to combat racism and injustice, we are similarly unwilling to follow Jesus. Because there is no discipleship that leaves your politics, your thinking and speaking, your finances, or your internet use unchanged. Jesus asks for all of it because he is better, because his kingdom is better. And yes, it might hurt, And yes, you might stumble as you take hobbling steps forward, but this road leads to life and life to the fullest. Lead us there, King Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us or find more teachings and available resources from Van City at www.vancity.church. You can also support Van City financially at vancity.church.